Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Thursday Morning Report. This morning, I'll be talking with uh, Professor Alan Cooperman of the University of Texas LBJ School of Public Affairs. We're going to be talking about uh, the current incursion into Libya. Professor Cooperman, are you there? I am, thank you. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. It's a beautiful sunny day here in Austin, Texas. Yeah, very good. I, I bet it's a little bit hotter there than it is up here in Mendocino. Always. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. Can you just describe for us uh, the situation that was on the ground at the time uh, of the UN resolution? What was happening in Libya when uh, Obama decided to go to the UN and uh, and kind of and push for this no-fly zone, etc.? Well, there had been a uh, violent conflict going on for about a month in Libya at that point, and what had happened is that uh, it started with a couple days of nonviolent protests. Uh, there was a crackdown by Gaddafi uh, against those protests, which then morphed almost immediately into an armed rebellion. And in fact, it was it was such a quick transformation into an armed rebellion. I think it's pretty clear that the armed rebellion was planned ahead of time. In any case, the the rebels, even though they were not well armed, they sort of took uh, the government by surprise, and for the first week or two made some significant advances against the government, uh, declared certain cities liberated and so forth. And then the government uh, got itself organized and started a counteroffensive against the rebels. And because the government was so much better equipped than the rebels, it pushed the rebels back very, very quickly. In the course of two weeks, defeated them totally or partially in every major city in Libya, except for one last city, which was uh, Benghazi, the second biggest city in Libya, uh, and and the big city in the east of Libya. And so uh, that city was about to fall to Gaddafi's forces. And at that point, the rebels uh, put out statements around the world saying, if this city falls, there's going to be a bloodbath. Uh, there's going to be genocidal violence in the city. And then four days later, uh, President Obama got up and said, we're going to intervene with NATO, uh, with the U.N. authorization in Libya to stop a bloodbath. And my concern is that there was no bloodbath in Libya. What there was was a civil, civil war, rebels targeting the government, government targeting rebels. It's true that some civilians were being caught in the crossfire, um, but this is not a genocide. It's not the Holocaust. It's not Rwanda. It's not Bosnia. It's a civil war. And so 
um, the way that President Obama portrayed it as if this was a, a genocide that was impending or a bloodbath that was impending, there's absolutely no evidence of that, and there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. In any case, that was the situation when, in March, there was the U.N. authorization of a no-fly zone and all necessary measures to protect civilians. That's it. That's the mandate was to protect civilians. No more than that. So do you think the U.N. mandate would have been passed if the United States hadn't pushed it through the U.N.? Wasn't this sort of started by, by the United States, even, or were there other forces within the United Nations that were, were pushing for this as well? It was, very, it was pushed a lot by France and the U.K. as well. And um, the best explanation that, that we have so far of, of why France was pushing this, and in fact France was pushing it before the United States was pushing it, huh. Uh, the best explanation is that um, the French president, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, had, um, was, was really falling in the polls in um, domestic support in France. And, and the reason was that his uh, foreign minister had been a personal friend and had vacationed with the uh, dictator of Tunisia who then got overthrown the previous month. And so it looked as if France was playing footsie with dictators and was on the wrong side of history and didn't support democracy. And so the French government was under a lot of pressure, and it seems as if the French president thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll get back on the right side of history by supporting freedom fighters, quote-unquote, in Libya. And he made this his personal initiative and he got the uh, British on his side, and then uh, he lobbied uh, Obama. So that's one thing which which helped to get the U.S. Uh, in favor of this. But the other thing is that there were there were advocates within the uh, Obama administration itself pushing very hard on on the president. Eventually, they convinced the president to do this, and and then I think you know the the premise of your question is correct that that really it took the U.S. support to get this thing pushed through the U.N. Security Council, um, as it did in March. Have you heard about, have you heard some of these rumors that Sarkozy took a lot of campaign contributions from Gaddafi himself? Is there any truth to that? Have you heard about that? I, I've just heard little bits and pieces. I have no idea, but you know, the fact of the matter is that Gaddafi was an ally of the West mm-hmm. ever since 2003. This is, this is, again, one of the main points I've been trying to emphasize is that in the distant, distant past, he was an enemy of the U.S. He was a bad guy. Um, uh, but ever since 2003, he has been an ally, not just of France or of the U.K., but of the United States. He paid reparations for past terrorism. Mm-hmm. He gave up his weapons of mass destruction and allowed U.S. inspectors to go in and verify the destruction of his weapons of mass destruction, his nuclear program. And he provided intelligence to the U.S. to the U.S. government against Al Qaeda. So he was our ally in the war on terror. So it wouldn't, you know, people are sort of shocked, shocked now that there was cooperation with his military, or that uh, he made contributions to universities in the U.K. We shouldn't be surprised. That was the goal of U.S. and Western foreign policy was to rehabilitate Gaddafi. He was being nice to us. We were being nice to him. And now, for some reason, the U.S. government has turned on him. 
And now it's sort of an embarrassment that we had these relationships. But that's foreign policy. If someone does something to you and then they turn around and they start cooperating with you, you should cooperate back with them. And Gaddafi's reward for being nice to the U.S., for giving up his weapons of mass destruction, for paying millions and millions of dollars of reparations, for providing intelligence against Osama bin Laden, his reward is that we're bombing his country and we're trying to kill him and overthrow him. Right. Can can we talk a little bit about the the what's now being called the Obama Doctrine or this responsibility to protect the the kind of the the reason or the justification for going in? I mean, it seems to me like uh, at least during some periods in history, nations had certain sovereignty. You know, it, what what does it take to justify interfering in a in a nation's civil war? Right. Well, there is a long-standing um, norm of sovereignty. And this thing was formalized, actually, uh, in the 17th century. Um, and just I'll give you 30 seconds of history, Perfect. which explains why. There was a horrible, horrible bloodbath in Europe in the early 17th century. It was a 30 years of nearly constant war that wiped out a large percentage of the population in Western Europe. And the reason people were fighting was over the religion of the other country. They said, we're Protestants, we don't like Catholics, or we're Catholics, we don't like Protestants, and because we don't like your religion in your country, we feel justified to go in, attack, and start a war. And eventually, some cooler heads prevailed and realized that if the internal behavior of a state is a legitimate cause of war, then we'll have perpetual war, and that's not good. And so what they decided in this Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, that's the year 1648, is they said the internal affairs of a state are no business of another state and are never a legitimate cause of war. And so that's where this norm of sovereignty started a very long time ago. And it helped contribute to a fair degree of stability over time in the world. Now, if you flash forward, to World War II, you know, there was this horrible genocide, the Holocaust. And after that, people said, well, there has to be some limit on this sovereignty. You can't, it, it, it's not legitimate to just stand aside if some state decides to eliminate, to kill an entire race of people or an entire religion of people. And so ever since World War II, there's been this uh, changing norm, which says that sovereignty is not 100% absolute, that there are certain things that if you do in your state, they're not acceptable, and you lose sovereignty, and the rest of the world can intervene. And in the last 10 years, and especially the last five years, this has been called, quote-unquote, the, the responsibility to protect. That is, if states don't protect their own citizens and actually target their own citizens for violence, um, if that reaches a certain threshold, then the rest of the world can intervene. And in, in principle, I support that so long as that bar is very, very high. If, if, if we say, okay, you have sovereignty, but if you start to commit genocide, then you lose sovereignty. I would actually support that. My problem is that the bar keeps getting pushed down lower, 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 lower. And some people are saying that in Libya, we had a right to intervene. Well, why? There was no genocide. There was no bloodbath. There was no ethnic cleansing. Mm -hmm. How did Gaddafi lose his right of sovereignty? 
even the UN resolution didn't say he lost his right of sovereignty. It just said that there would be intervent civilians. That was accomplished in a day or two. And yet we keep bombing, and now we, there was this attempted assassination from the heir of Gaddafi. We missed Gaddafi. We killed his innocent son, his youngest son, who's had nothing to do with politics. And we killed three infant grandchildren who had nothing to do with politics. So in this effort that's supposedly justified by protecting civilians, we're killing civilians. In this intervention, which is supposed to be because Gaddafi is being barbaric and we're civilized and we're going to teach him a lesson, we're being barbaric and targeting members of his family in a residence. So, you know, this is, this is why sovereignty was established in the first place. And it has been eroded, and in, in my opinion, it has been eroded too far. And we're learning the lessons, and the lessons are we're going to encourage war and we're going to have more war. And what happens is that more civilians get killed when you have more war. So it's a recipe for chaos. Yeah, I mean, uh, by all accounts, from what you're saying, uh, had Gaddafi been allowed to go into Benghazi, and uh, that probably would have been the end of the Civil War. Uh, it would have been over a few weeks ago. It would have been over um, before the end of March. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look, uh, Gaddafi had defeated the rebels in every city. It took him less than two weeks to do that. He had just captured Ajdabia, which is the last city before Benghazi, which was the last rebel stronghold. And all of the intelligence on the ground says that the rebels weren't going to stand and fight because they had no chance of winning. They were going to flee. And Gaddafi actually had said to the rebels, if you throw down your weapons, I will not attack you. If you want to flee, I will give you free passage to the border so that you can flee in safety to Egypt. He didn't want a bloodbath. He wanted to regain control of his country. And that probably would have taken a couple days, at most a week. This war would have been over. There would have been no more civilians being killed by the end of March. And instead, here we are uh, in May, and the war is raging, and cities have changed hands two, three, four times as the rebels rush ahead and try and capture something and then do, and then Gaddafi's forces recover and retake it. And every time one of these cities changes hands, they're shelling uh, artillery, mortar fire, some ground fighting, and civilians are being killed, civilians are being wounded. So this intervention, which was supposed to halt the violence, in fact, has escalated and perpetuated the violence. So, as I said, I'm not against, in principle, intervention to prevent genocide or intervention to save non-combatants, but when you do a quote-unquote humanitarian intervention and it winds up getting more people killed than would have died otherwise, then you have a policy that's backfired. And this is, you know, something that I've focused on in my work for 15 years now. This happens time and time again. It happened in Bosnia. It happened in Kosovo. It happened in Darfur. Every time we intervene, what we do is we encourage rebels to fight more. And whenever they fight more, the government retaliates more. And the consequence, ultimately, is that more civilians get killed. So we really need to rethink, uh, as you said, this emerging norm of the responsibility to protect. It's a great idea in principle, but in practice, it's backfired time and again and gotten more people killed. 
Uh, let's talk a little bit about who these rebels are, because um, that's something that uh, is, is a question, I think, in the, in the media. And nobody really knows. Uh, is it, is it, uh, are these, are these, you know, the new guys going to be better than the, than the old guys in a way? I mean, you can talk uh, bad about Gaddafi all you want, but, uh, you know, he's a secular uh, socialist in general. At least he's not a, a radical Muslim. Um, you know, or conservative theocrat or something like that. Uh, so do you have any uh, idea who the rebels might be? Who exactly are we helping out here? <laughs> well, it's a mix. It's a mix as, as almost all, um, revolutionary movements are. Um, so that, uh, in, in, in the United States, there are advocates for these rebels and they claim that a lot of the rebels are just doctors and lawyers and teachers, professionals, Western-oriented, and they just want their country to be a normal Western democracy. And I'm sure that's true of many of the people who support the rebellion. But there is a core, and in fact, the real fighters, the ones who are on the front lines, and the intelligence that's, that we're getting, and in fact, there are interviews with these folks, and they make clear that they're, they have a very different agenda, that they are radical Islamists. Uh, many of these folks actually, who are from Libya, had gone to Iraq to join al-Qaeda in Iraq to kill American soldiers there, or had gone to Afghanistan to fight with the Taliban and the al-Qaeda against U.S. troops there. And after al-Qaeda in Iraq sort of crumbled, mainly at least the foreign fighter element crumbled, these Libyans returned from Iraq to eastern Libya, and a few years later started this rebellion uh, against Gaddafi. And so that's a very strong core uh, of, the, of the actual fighters on the front lines in Libya. The other element in the, um, in the rebellion are former Libyan soldiers. So these are folks who had no problem fighting for Gaddafi for many, many years, and then they had some falling out for whatever reason, either because they're from a different tribe or because they said, why does Gaddafi get to be the dictator? I want to be the dictator. And so that's another element. So you have some true secular Western-oriented folks. You have some radical uh, Islamists that would like to turn Libya into a state like the Taliban turned uh, Afghanistan. And then you have some... Um, former Qaddafi regime elements who would probably, if they came to power, um, keep Libya a dictatorship, but now they would have control instead of Qaddafi's family having control. And, you know, so the question is, if the U.S. could support these folks to come to power, would that be a good idea? Um, we did a similar sort of thing when we supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Uh, we thought that was a good idea to overthrow uh, a Soviet-supported regime, and we unfortunately got our wish. And the result was we got the Taliban in the mid-1990s, and the Taliban supported Osama bin Laden, and then we got 9-11. We know that story. I'm not saying for sure that that's what would happen uh, in, in Libya, but the point is that Gaddafi was our ally. Gaddafi was helping us in the war on terror. And there's no assurance whatsoever that if these rebels could win, that they would be our ally. Uh, my guess is they would be less of our ally than Qaddafi was, and that's if they could win. 
it's not clear that they can win anytime soon. And so instead what you have is sort of turning Libya into this failed state uh, where you have rebels in the east, you have Gaddafi in the west, you've now antagonized Gaddafi. He's not likely to be an, a U.S. ally going forward. So you won't have a, a U.S. ally in western Libya, and you won't have a U.S. ally really in eastern Libya. And you also have this ongoing civil war, and those sorts of unstable areas can sometimes be breeding grounds for for terrorists, as we've seen in Yemen, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. When you have a civil war, al-Qaeda loves that. They right. come in there and they say, uh, this is a chance for jihad. So, you know, it, it, in my personal opinion, this intervention in Libya was ill-advised for two reasons. One, it did not improve the situation in, ter- in humanitarian terms. As I said, I think it got more people killed than would have died otherwise. But it's also not in the U.S. national interest. Gaddafi was a U.S. ally, and whatever we're producing in Libya is likely to be more of a headache for us in terms of the war on terror. So do you think the administration was just duped by um, by the rebels here in terms of thinking that there might have been some kind of... Uh, uh, some kind of civilian massacre, or do you think that there is a, an, al- an alternate reason maybe behind the scenes for, for desiring regime change? I mean, it seems to me that Obama came out pretty quickly afterwards, uh, even though they seem to be overstepping the, the quote-unquote no-fly zone, and he was talking about regime change just a, a week or two right after uh, he started the action. So, yeah. you know, that seems to be a goal of his, <laughs> despite the limits of the UN resolution. And uh, so, do you have any, um, any ideas as to what's really going on, you know? I think that there were multiple factors under consideration and and two big ones. I think that, um, one, there were folks telling Obama that uh, there's great democratic momentum in the Arab world, that we've had this peaceful revolution, this democratic revolution in Tunisia, then another one in Egypt, there's sort of a positive, benign domino effect going on here. And Gaddafi is trying to stop that. And if it stops in Libya, then we won't have any more um, pro-Western democratic change in the region. Um, I I have a lot of problems with that uh, premise to begin with. It's not clear to me that all of these democratic changes are going to be pro-Western. Uh, For example, in Egypt, I think it's a very good chance that when we look back, it'll turn out that Mubarak was a much better ally than whatever comes next in Egypt. But in any case, I think this was part of the argument. The second thing is that there were folks in the administration, and especially two officials particularly, um, Samantha Power uh, at at the National Security Council and Susan Rice, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., who said... And I think they believed this could be a bloodbath. Uh, I think they either they were duped or they were naive. And they said to President Obama, this is your chance to show that you're not going to have a Rwanda on your watch. This is your chance to show that you're willing to intervene, not for selfish reasons, but for altruistic reasons. And this will really reinforce this norm which you mentioned earlier, of the responsibility to protect. And in fact, Samantha Power had, had written a, a book, a Pulitzer Prize winning book, um, that talked about how the U.S. had failed to intervene in other cases 
leading to genocide, and she condemned previous administrations for that inaction, and she said intervening is easy, and the only reason we haven't intervened is because we're heartless. And now she was in the government, and she said to Obama, it's time to put your money where your mouth is and uh, intervene on humanitarian grounds. And so I think those two things came together, and then what we see, of course, is, is what I think is essentially a, a disaster, a disastrous intervention. And it, it sort of disproves the whole premise of Samantha Power's book, that it's easy to intervene, and that intervening saves lives rather than costs lives, and that intervening is in the U.S. interest, not counter to the U.S. interest. So, I mean, maybe she'll have to write a second edition of her book and a little bit of a mea culpa, but I, I doubt that'll happen. Well, all right. Very good. Looks like we're pushing on uh, to a half hour into the show, and I've got to make time for my next guest. Uh, but I really appreciate you being on the show and helping to uh, enlighten uh, us here in Mendocino County about what's going on uh, over there in Libya. Uh, so I appreciate uh, having you here. Uh, for everyone who's been listening, I've been speaking with uh, Alan Cooperman, Professor Alan Cooperman of the University of Texas LBJ School of Public Affairs. We've been talking about the quote-unquote humanitarian intervention in Libya. Uh, all right. Thanks very much. Will you say hi to all my friends at the Crown and Anchor for me? I will do. Thanks very much. And uh, you have a beautiful part of the world out there in Mendocino, too. I hope to come visit again soon. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thanks again. Okay. All best. Take care. All right, very good. That was Alan Cooperman, a PhD from the University of Texas, uh, helping to uh, make some sense of, of why we are in Libya right now. He uh, uh, was kind of raising the question as to whether or not the, the humanitarian uh, reason was justifiable. We're looking at 929. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. Stay tuned in just a few minutes. I'm going to get another guest on William K. of Ecofascism. He has another possible reason why uh, we've seen the destabilization in North Africa and Libya in particular. William, are you there? I am. Excellent. How are you doing this morning? Very well. How's the weather over there? It's beautiful, actually. How's the weather in Alberta this morning? Oh, we finally got through one of the longest, coldest winters uh, in living memory, but it's over now. It's actually nice out. Excellent. Uh, yeah, my first guest was from Texas, so we're having we're having people from all over North America this morning. <laughs> Lots of different uh, kind of temperatures going on. Well, Alberta's a lot like Texas. Right. <laughs> Well, um, so our first guest was talking about, we're talking about Libya specifically, but North Africa in general. Uh, and I just, let me tell everyone your article on ecofascism.com, Desert Tech and Environmentalism's North Africa Campaign. Um, the first guest was basically discussing this new responsibility to protect doctrine that was used to uh, to create the no-fly zone in Libya, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it just sort of posed the question, well, there really wasn't about to be a civilian massacre there. So what's the real reason uh, why the United States and NATO would be interested in going into North Africa? And I was just so interested about uh, your article about Desertec uh, that I thought, hmm, you know, this sounds like it might be a, a possible behind-the-scenes reason that maybe they don't want to tell us about on the mainstream news, but uh, uh, might be uh, worthy of note here on the Thursday Morning Report. So do you want to describe uh, the, the Desertec project and... Uh, well, I've been calling it Desert Tech. I don't Desert know Tech. how they pronounce it in German. I think maybe you're in right. In a, yeah, nutshell, fair in a nutshell, Desert Tech is an energy mega project 
whereby solar power plants will be built all across North Africa at a cost of over $500 billion U.S., and these will be connected via high-voltage cables under the Mediterranean to Europe. Uh, it is hoped that they will be able to supply Europe with about 17% of all Europe's electricity needs by 2050, and those electricity needs will be much greater than now because they are switching to you know, electric cars and what have you. It's not one specific solar farm, and it's not all uh, solar farms. There will be some wind farms and things like that, but the main plan is to build you know, a hundred or so large concentrated solar power plants in the Sahara Desert. And you know how Europe is uh, going towards renewable energy, and they're putting a lot of investment into solar power. But then if you look at Europe, much of it, you know, the Netherlands, Holland, uh, Germany, these are not sunny places. Right. And they realize that if you really want to build solar power plants, you build them somewhere where the sun shines all all day. So that's the plan. But as with any other major investment, uh, you do not sink a lot of money into someone else's property without some assurances that it's not going to be expropriated or tampered with. History has a lot of examples of countries investing into, you know, Chilean copper mines or Iranian oil fields, and then the local regime expropriating that investment. Or in, in Libya. In, in Libya as yep, well. Libya. Libya in 1972 expropriated mm -hmm. British oil interests. Uh, 1950s, uh, Egypt expropriated the, the Suez Canal. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at uh, the people behind Desert Tech, and these are some of the of Europe's largest business enterprises, as are most of uh, Europe's uh, politicians, certainly in Germany, uh, they would not be sinking $500 billion into Tunisia and uh, Egypt and Morocco, without some assurances that the regimes there are going to do their bidding. And it's not just solar power. North Africa also has a great deal of uh, natural gas reserves. Part of Europe's green energy plan is a transition to natural gas as well. There's already plans in the work to build pipelines up from Egypt you know, around uh, the Mediterranean into Europe, there are large uh, liquid natural gas tankers already plying the trade across the Mediterranean. So if Europe is planning to transition to renewable energies, which they definitely are, and if they're transitioning to natural gas, which they definitely are, increasingly North Africa is going to be their powerhouse. At the same time, North Africa has a booming population. It's right now about 170 million. Within a generation or so, North Africa's population will be the same as Europe's, and it will be a, a tremendous consumer market. So by integrating the North African economies into programs like Desert Tech and into a natural gas hookup, European business is hoping to have a captive market for their own consumer items and what have you. What they do not want in those five regimes are independent, economically nationalist regimes. What they want are weaker, sort of downsized states that are going to be pliable, that are going to do their bidding. That explains the movement to you know, sort of almost you know, across the coast uh, regime change. It also explains why some countries are getting a free pass, like Morocco, which is basically an absolutist monarchy, but which one has been very devoted to the whole Desert Tech concept. Hmm. Uh, it seems not to be troubled as some of the other regimes have been. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. Just uh, f- thinking about... One more point. Okay, know, I'm ahead. not someone who agrees with outgoing Secretary of Defense very often, uh, Gates, but he hit the nail on the head. America has no vital interest in this. Right. So the American foreign policy, they're being led around by the nose by the Europeans. It's, uh, you know, the Germans so, so deftly step back when the military thing starts happening. They, they would much rather, if there's going to be any violence like that, that the British and the Americans take the heat for it. Sure. Uh, but America has no interest in this Desert Tech project. They have no interest in natural gas from, from North Africa. Uh, this is uh, something that the Europeans are deeply interested in, and something they have been historically interested in. And uh, the Americans, uh, this administration is really being duped. They, they got they got suckered into this, uh, and hopefully they can they can pull out of it as quickly as they got into it. Right. I'm, I mean, theoretically, Obama's going to have to justify himself to Congress, according to the War Powers Act, uh, 60 days after the incursion yeah, began. The clock is we'll, we'll see if that happens. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. just to uh, talk about the Desert Tech initiative. Initially, it sounds like so completely pie in the sky. I mean, all these undersea cables and what have you. But the more you get into it and the more you look at the companies that are behind it, these right. are definitely the dominant economic enterprises of Europe. Siemens, uh, engineering, that company has 400,000 employees. Just their environmental technology division has revenues of $40 billion a year. Uh, all of the major electrical companies of Europe, from Spain, Italy, Germany, they're all members, they're all shareholders in what's called the Desert Tech Industrial Initiative. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have, I, it's hard to uh, describe how much work is all, groundwork has already been done. They've only built several sort of small pilot plants along North Africa. They've built even more in Spain. But this is not something uh, that is uh, simply on the drawing board. This is something that is definitely going forward. Right. The rationale behind it, of course, is always climate change, things like that. But most of the, the countries involved and most of the companies involved, <clears throat> will all, they will always twin the climate change argument with the need to uh, get away from imported oil, with the need to, uh, to modify their energy doctrine to accommodate the fact that Europe is so resource poor. So they, they, they exploit the climate change argument clearly as a ruse to rationalize some of the fundamental failings with Europe's uh, economic system. Namely, they don't have any oil or coal or uranium or things like that. Well, we've got the same thing going on here in the United States. They're talking about putting several of these mega solar power plants uh, here in Southern California, and yeah, it's the Mojave same Desert. right. And it's the same players. It's Chevron, you know. It's the same major Exxon, the same big corporations uh, that have pushed these things through Congress, and now they're getting you know they're getting federal funding uh, to do the same kind of thing here, and using the same kind of uh, rationale. Although it's interestingly the big oil companies that are going into that now that the uh, the oil is getting hard and harder to find. Oh, uh, I question whether or not the oil is being harder and harder to find. There's mm-hmm. a lot of it out there. There's sort of other, you know, regulatory environments that are driving it. But I'll give you one example. Abengoa Solar <clears throat> is a major Spanish firm. They're actually building the 250 megawatt plant in the Mojave Desert. Oh, wow. Uh, it is, these are literally the same companies. Right. The companies that are primarily driving the transition to solar are definitely Siemens, uh, there's another company called ABB. There are these giant engineering firms in in Europe uh, that are the they are the companies that actually manufacture the solar panels and mm-hmm. the wind turbines and what have you. Uh, 
Siemens, you know those giant wind turbines you see popping up here and there? Siemens to date has manufactured and installed 9,000 of those turbines. Now, they've got several different models. They sell them all over the world. This is a very big business to them. They definitely dominate that industry. It's a, anyone should check out the website of Siemens. For one thing, a lot of these companies like Siemens and Munich Re and these uh, big German banks, you go to their websites, and, and it seems like you're reading Greenpeace literature. They just really lay on this climate change and global warming propaganda very thick. Yeah, I did uh, check out the the Desert Tech um, website, and it was this. It was the same thing. Like if you look at it, they're the the you know the best people in the world. They love the environment so much, and they can't wait to do all this work uh, to promote uh, you know green technologies throughout the world. Um, but then you have to question, uh, you know, are they creating regime change in North Africa in order to push forward this al almost neo-colonial uh, type of, of uh, action in order to protect their investments for these huge solar plants? Oh, that, that should be unquestioned. The, yeah. uh, as soon as, it's, it's kind of funny. My reading of it is a little bit different. It's, it's always hard to tell from the outside what's really going on. Every time there's a major political upheaval in any country, there's going to be a domestic and foreign component to it. There's going to be a natural grassroots upheaval, particularly in countries like that that have had very little uh, in terms of democracy. There's going to be an authentic uprising of the people. But there's always going to be a foreign element that's manipulating and steering it and funding it. Uh-huh. Uh, as soon as the, it starts with the Tunisian, you know, what they call the Jasmine Revolution, mm -hmm. which was very much a textbook event of the sorts of regime changes you saw when the Soviet Union collapsed. And in countries like Czechoslovakia and Poland and East Germany, they had all these velvet revolutions. There were mass mobilizations. They were not particularly bloody. And then there was a collapse of the regime. That sort of thing happened in Tunisia. And that sort of thing happens when you've got outside powers funding what's called civil society or non-government organizations. Right, let's talk about Many that. Many of these organizations, they appear to be quite diverse, but in fact they're highly centralized. And they can be easily mobilized into a, a coalescing force for a mass demonstration and what have you. Definitely what we saw happening in Egypt. You know, my estimates is that the number of activists quote-unquote, being employed by the American government and being by, employed by, you know, countless European foundations in Cairo would have exceeded 100,000. And that explains the whole demonstration in there. Right. That's who was there. Those people were paid to be there. And let's not lose sight that what happened in Egypt was a military coup d'etat. This was not, you know, some grand upswelling of the people. There was a persistent mass demonstration in a central square a lot of leading generals were going through that square, shaking hands with people and assuring them that the army would not be used against them. And eventually, pressure from the generals and from outside forces got Mubarak to step down. This was not a revolution. This was a palace coup. And these mass demonstrations are merely a sideshow. But the first of these was the Jasmine Revolution in Tunisia. And this was textbook, the sort of thing, that, as soon as they start calling it the Jasmine Revolution, you know you're talking about one of these sort of foreign intelligence-inspired events. As soon as it was over, the Germans were in there. Uh, the German foreign minister uh, shows up in Tunisia you know, within a week or two after the regime change uh, to declare the revolution is irreversible. 
and to announce that you know that the 250 German businesses already in Tunisia will be uh, are greatly pleased with this change. And I know that recently there's an article that's been published uh, that Desertec uh, Tunisia office has been dramatically expanded since the you know the quote unquote revolution. So what you're finding in a lot of but it's not the same thing in all of them. It seems to me that a lot of the other political upheavals went off sort of half-cocked. Uh, the, the, events, the right. event in Tunisia went down smooth as glass. You know, and uh, you know, within, within weeks, the German foreign minister, Westerveld, was there, you know, you know, shaking hands with the new regime and, and pledging millions of dollars to various funds. Uh, that went down smooth, and the events in Egypt seemed to go off half-cocked. You know, the Western powers had developed a vast civilian infrastructure within Egypt, but they did not seem to really have a, a real plan, and it went off in a sort of protracted fashion. Events in Libya were completely different. You know, within, you know, the first reported demonstration in Libya occurred on February the 15th of this year. And keep in mind, going into this year, in January, Gaddafi was an ally. Right. You know, by February 15th, there were some demonstrations less than 48 hours later. A third of the country has been swarmed by armed insurgents. This is not the same phenomenon that you saw in Tunisia or in Egypt. You know, sort of a mass civilian protest movement. This, this, from the get-go, this was an armed insurgency. And of the, of the first 300 fatalities in Egypt, half of them were unarmed police officers and disarmed government troops. Some of them were killed in massacres. So that's what happens there. And, uh, I, the thinking was, it seemed to people that got carried away with themselves, the thinking was that they were, they were all going to fall like dominoes across the North Africa. Right. Egypt turns into this messy civil war, and then I think the thinking was that all they needed was a little push, you know, threats of military activity from NATO, and that uh, Gaddafi was going to or flee. Libya, right. That didn't happen. Then I think the thinking was that if they just started some bombing campaigns, that would be enough to turn the tide. And it, and it didn't. I, I can't imagine anyone planning or desiring the outcome that they've got. This protracted civil war that's now killing lots of civilians. Uh, you know, it's, it's, right, their initial excuses when you think. I can't imagine anyone planning that. You know, this was uh, something that went off. It was an improvisation. It's something that went off completely half-cocked. And now they're, they're, they're sliding deeper and deeper into this, uh, and their coalition's falling apart. Also keep in mind that Libya was never central to the Desertec idea. The key countries to Desertec are Morocco, which is already investing billions of dollars into the project, because what's key is you have to get these submarine cables from North Africa to Europe. Of course, the Strait of Gibraltar's already got one cable, and they're planning more. But the supporters in Europe being Europe, don't want to see a system where all of the electricity flows through Spain. Uh, Spain's main owner of their electricity grid is a Desertec member. But the plan is to have several lines crossing the Mediterranean. So it isn't all at one choke point. Tunisia, if you take out your atlas, you will notice that it is very close to Sicily. In fact, it's it's only 160 kilometers away from Sicily, it's, uh, and it, it's easy to, to build a cable. They already have undersea cables uh, that are longer than that. Spain's already laid some to some of the islands that they claim. Uh, I know Norway and Netherlands have a, an undersea cable of that length. So building a cable from the tip of Tunisia to Sicily 
that's very doable. Uh, and then, of course, from Sicily to Egypt, that's, you know, a three-kilometer uh, skip. So what's crucial to Desert Tech is Tunisia, where you can, you know, you can have all of your solar farms in the Sahara Desert, then run the cables through there, the tip of that peninsula. It's 145 kilometers to Sicily. And, of course, in Italy, you know, the main electrical companies, uh, two or three of them are all Desert Tech industrial shareholders. So in terms of, uh, Libya was not that essential to Desert Tech. Tunisia was, and Tunisia was the first country that got taken down like that. Mm-hmm. It's not as though these, uh, the people who are, you know, the imperialists in Europe want, you know, a conventional annexation. What they want is state deconstruction. Those countries, right across the, the North African coast, they only became independent in the 1950s. From 1951 to 1961, all of those countries became independent. In the decade and a half before then, they were more or less ruled by American and British militaries who got in there after World War II. Of course, the British were already in Egypt. In the 1930s, you know, the fascists swept, European fascists swept much of that area by force. You know, it was, was Mussolini's grand plan, and it began with an invasion of, of what, what is now Eastern Libya, what was then called Serenica. But the European fascists have always had their designs on that area. They sweep in in the 1930s. They get driven out in the 1940s during World War II. You know, Rommel held out in Tunisia uh, throughout all of 1942. He was driven back, you know, at the Egyptian border, and the, the German Italian forces, you know, retreated headlong into, into Tunisia, which they could, being a peninsula, they could cut it off, and they held out there until late 1943, and then that fell. But that region we're talking about now was then under Allied control for about 10 years or so. Then all of those states developed independence. Each of those states then embarked upon economic, economic nationalist strategies. Right, they separated themselves from the West. Hmm? They separated themselves from the Western economies, and they and they uh, oftentimes they nationalized their resources f- for the people in general. Uh, I think you yeah. know Libya has one of the highest standards of living in uh, in in Africa. I understand yeah. the highest in mm-hmm. Africa. Uh, yeah, and that was the struggle. And, and as they moved in that direction, their, their relationship with the West was often very hostile. These were not the kind of regimes that the West wanted. Well, we're now seeing them, they're getting cleared out like bowling pins. Now they're going to get replaced by these sort of half-assed puppet regimes that when it gets down to the negotiating table over natural gas, over market penetration, over desert tech, over, you know, you know, the big fear of the desert tech people, of course, going back to the beginning is you invest $500 billion into North Africa and the locals expropriate it. Right. I mean, who wants to invest money in a project like that? You don't go forward in a project like that unless you've got compliant regimes there on the ground. And this isn't chump change. It's $500 billion. It's 17% of the European electricity market. Imagine 17% of the United States electricity market, that kind of volume of cash. Yeah, huge, huge profits. That's the sort of money that causes regimes to fall. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it's interesting to note that you know, so quickly afterwards, the Germans were in there and Desert Tech is in there. Um, they want stability. You know, they don't want the locals throwing rocks through their precious parabolic mirrors. Uh, and they don't want uh, 
you know, radical regimes taking power that are going to either, you know, cut those cables or start demanding exorbitant amounts of uh, money for it. And it's the same thing with the natural gas. The more, you know, deconstructed those states are in those regimes, the better a deal you're going to get in terms of buying their gas. Basically, you just want the facilities. You want access to the reserves. You don't want the yokels uh, interfering with that. And also, you know, all, all along there, all the economic nationalism, it, it's always very protectionist. All of those regimes have been very protectionist. There's a tremendous amount of state ownership of wealth in places like Egypt and that. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, the, the European imperialists want to see all that broken up. But back to point A, America has no benefit in this at all. I mean, this is one of the, the silliest uh, uh, adventures they've ever undertaken. Right. I mean, you know, not to praise Donald Trump, but, you know, go back to Roman imperialists. They actually conquered a territory, took over its resources. You could, you could sort of, it made a crude sort of sense. You know, when Trump says, well, we just seized their oil fields. You know, Henry Kissinger once wrote an essay uh, under a false name about, you know, the U.S. physically going in and just seizing Kuwait's oil fields. Like just surrounding them, taking them over, boot out the local bazaars, you know. Sucks to be you. We got it. Okay, right. that kind of imperialism, the kind of imperialism that the Romans had, that, that had a certain logic to it. So there's, well, there's a like certain honesty for have. sure. What's that? I say a certain amount of honesty, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then we have war like we do have with Iraq, where we go on these brutal wars, and we don't really ever seem to get any reserves out of it. Oh, right. And countries like Libya and Iraq, they would gladly sell us their oil. It isn't as though they were holding out on us, so they don't make any sense at all. And this particular venture, where now, you know, where the Americans and the Canadians are being the bully boys for what's basically a European imperialist project. Right. Well, you wonder if the money, you know, Siemens, uh, for example, has a lot of a lot of clout in the United States Congress. I'm sure they're lobbying Congress as well. Uh, you're talking Deutsche about Deutsche Bank. These... Deutsche Bank right. is a member of the Desert Tech Industrial Initiative. Deutsche Bank recently, about six months ago, purchased the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, Deutsche Bank is deeply involved in California politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can I discuss that on the website as well. Oh, definitely, there is such a thing as the German Global Organization. Unlike America, German businesses are extremely concentrated. People talk about corporate directorships and overlapping stuff in the United States. Go to list the top 40 German businesses, check out their boards of directors. I mean, this is a group of 100 men. Right. And uh, I profile in that essay uh, the Bertelsmann uh, Group. They are the America's number one publisher of books. They own Random House. They own like over 100 imprints. Uh, they publish over 200 magazines. They have profound influence on the English-speaking world, as do a variety of other German-based uh, uh, news media organizations. I discussed briefly the Holzbrink family, who, as with the owners of Bertelsmann, you know, great history of pro-Naziism. The Holzbrink family owns Scientific American magazine, Nature magazine. They own all these glossy monthly publications that have been pushing global warming and the whole green agenda now for decades. You know, that all traces back, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, you know, the, the world is too broad for that, and even, even a movement like the environmental movement uh, involves, you know, thousands and thousands of organizations. It isn't a, a, a cabal of a few people, but increasingly it is something that is in the orbit of Europe, and Europe right. is uh, exerting undue influence on America, and, and on this administration uh, more so than any other one before 1776. 
You have an administration that is, you know, kowtowing and literally bending at the hip before monarchs. Uh, this is the problem. You've got a regime there that, you know, is doing things that are not at all. And I'm quoting your Secretary of Defense. Not at all in U.S. interest. Right. They have no interest in this war whatsoever. Well, it is interesting. I don't think it's much of a conspiracy to say that, that the rich are getting richer and that they do uh, work together to ensure that they keep the wealth amongst themselves. Uh, and so maybe... I will, There's a danger when you say the rich, you to, to view it as though there, there's one sort of colossal faction called the rich. Right. Uh, even amongst the billionaires that I, uh, I profile, which are definitely at the core of the environmental movement, they represent a small fraction of the world's billionaires. We're dealing with a faction within a social class, and it's a rather, you know, fractious factious at that. The, you know, I always steer away from any sort of conspiracy theory. I know how hard it is to talk about social movements and to wrap one's mind around social movements, but that is what we are dealing with. And these are things that are far larger than any small cabal people can actually steer. Well, very good, William. I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. It's 9.59 right now here on the West Coast. Uh, do you have anything you want to say here just in the last couple of seconds? You want to talk about ecofascism for just a minute? Yeah, sure. Uh, anybody want to check out uh, the website, www.ecofascism.com, and that is spelled E-C-O-F-A-S-C-I-S-M. And it's about the history of the environmental movement and uh, about social movements in general, and I hope people read it. And if they want to communicate with me, there is a link button for that process. And it's always a pleasure to be on your show, and uh, you are indeed a lion amongst the U.S. media <laughs> for daring to have this sort of stuff right aired. On. Well, thank you very much. You know, I, I definitely appreciate your point of view as well. It just seems to kind of like when I, when I read that article, I thought, huh, you know, nobody else is talking about this. But like you said, $500 billion is enough to cause regime change uh, just about anywhere. So uh, I appreciate your point of view. And thanks for coming on the show with me uh, this morning, enlightening Anytime. the public. All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll do it again here in another couple of months. Anytime. Okay. Thanks, William. And uh, have a great day. You too. Take care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was William K. of ecofascism.com. Thanks for joining me on this May the 5th edition of uh, the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX. I've been your host, Doug McKenty. I'll speak to you again in two weeks' time. We'll be talking about uh, a movie coming up at the Mendocino Film Festival, Feathered Cocaine. Should be very interesting uh, about falconing in the Middle East and a falconer that uh, apparently uh, helped train Osama bin Laden's falcons uh, just a few years ago. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about about that, especially in light of the uh, recent events that have been unfolding this week, at least according to the United States government. You've been listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. This is a Mendocino County Public Broadcasting listener-supported community radio streaming on the web at kzyx.org. The time is now 10.01 and stay tuned in just a few moments for Jazz from the Wharf with John Solo. Enjoy the music, everyone, and I'll speak to you again in two weeks' time. Take care. <laughs>